Today we're going to turn our attention to something a little less intense, but I trust no less important. God has established four institutions for the human race, I believe, and they are family, government, church, and work. And I think to a general degree, work has received the least amount of emphasis in the Christian community of those four institutions. Many of us pastors have probably inadvertently communicated that some kinds of work, namely ministry and missions, are more important than other kinds, and thus we've contributed to the secular sacred divide. And uh, we have sometimes failed to assist and equip our congregations to connect their Sunday worship with their Monday work. Yet work is of paramount importance. Work was something God established in the Garden of Eden before the fall. You know, work is not the curse, friends. It is something most of us do every day. Even retired people work. One of my geezer friends said the other day that, <laughs> that um, he was com- complaining. Of, the thing about retirement is you never get a day. Mental, emotional, and psychological health of all of us, to say nothing of our financial health. And the produce of our work is what maintains and sustains the other three institutions of family, government, and the church. In recent years, the church has thankfully begun to correct this lack of focus. And uh, there are two books that come to mind that I have really appreciated. One is by Tom Nelson, the pastor of Christ Community Church and Evangelical Free Church in Kansas City. Uh, Tom started that church, been there over 25 years, and uh, he did his summer, his uh, internship at our church in Wichita. He wrote a book called Work Matters, Connecting Sunday Worship to Monday Work. And then Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, uh, wrote another book called Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work. I highly recommend these books. I want to tackle the same theme that they deal with in these books, only I want to do it through a life story. And there's no one I know better exemplifies a biblical attitude toward work than Joseph. His life reflects the major truth. The word is no substitute for integrity at work. If you look up the word integrity in a thesaurus, you will see words like honesty, honor, faithfulness, reliability. And Joseph exemplified all of these to an amazing degree. There are three major parts to Joseph's work life, three jobs that he had in in his adult life in the book of Genesis. Uh, We're not going to be reading just one primary scripture passage because it covers three chapters, so we'll read the relevant portions when they come up. Each of these parts of Joseph's life reveals how he exercised integrity and experienced success as a worker and as a leader in the marketplace into which God placed him. His first job was as slave in Potiphar's house. 
Now, we studied chapter 39 last Lord's Day, so I'm going to only read the first paragraph, reread it. It says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now what is obvious from this paragraph is that Joseph was extremely successful in his first job as an adult. In a relatively short period of time, he went from being a trustee to being in charge of everything that Potiphar owned. And we're clearly told what the source of this blessing was. Five times it says that God was the source. And yet, it's obvious, probably too obvious for the author to even mention, that there were other factors in Joseph's success, principally that he was a man of integrity. He was a hard worker. He was honest. He was faithful. He was congenial. He was competent. Two principles stand out to me from this period of Joseph's life. And the first is that God can increase our influence as we serve with integrity in whatever job he places us. Remember that Joseph had been the prince of a family to whom God had made some amazing promises to his great-grandfather Abraham, his grandfather Isaac, his father Jacob. God had said, you're going to be a tremendous people, a successful nation. And yet, here he is, in a slave, betrayed by his brothers, a slave in Potiphar's house, and no one would be surprised if he became bitter and decided to do only the bare minimum in his work for Potiphar. But no, uh, Joseph understood that circumstances were not in charge of his life. God was. God was ultimately the one who placed him there, or at least allowed him to be there. So his assignment was to be submissive to God and to make the very best of his situation. And that's exactly what he did. Some of you are undoubtedly in jobs that appear to be dead-end jobs. The pay is not good, your boss is not fair, the work is demeaning, and you have lost all motivation to excel. Please think again. That all may be true, but you're not in as bad a situation as Joseph was. God calls us to do our work as unto him. Remember Ephesians 6, 7. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, because you are. You're serving him ultimately, not men. And if we do that, God can give us influence beyond our wildest imagination. There was a man in our church in Wichita who had a job none of us would want. He was a jailhouse worker in the Sedgwick County Jail. 
The pay was lousy. Uh, the job just didn't have any future to it. Uh, it was a thankless job in many ways. But God gave to Jim some enormous influence in the lives of prisoners and fellow workers alike. He touched so many lives. Another man was a house painter for five decades. And Reese impacted hundreds of customers through the quality of his work. He also showed his integrity uh, at the paint store. One day he came into the paint store and the owner took the Lord's name in vain. He saw Reese and immediately apologized. Not because Reese was preaching to him, but rather because through his life he had demonstrated that that language wasn't called for. Believe me, God can increase your influence as you serve diligently, faithfully, and with excellence in whatever job he places you. A second principle I get is that there are unique temptations in any job, and God calls upon us to resist those temptations to his glory and honor. As we saw so clearly last week, if anyone ever had a rational excuse for yielding to temptation, it was Joseph yielding to Potiphar's wife's seductions. But instead, he responded by declaring, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Tom Nelson writes, our work world brings with it the formidable challenge of many personal temptations. We can be tempted to abuse our power, to manipulate others for our own gain, to plagiarize someone else's creative work, to steal from our employer. Whether we are single or married, the workplace is often where we are most tempted to cross the boundaries God has for us in regard to our sexual purity. What are the unique temptations of your job? In what ways are you being tempted to cut corners, to flirt with danger? God is calling upon you to hit the brakes now, friends, or a better analogy would be to flee as Joseph did. Now, Joseph's second job, after being slave in Potiphar's house, was prisoner in Pharaoh's dungeon. You'll recall when he refused the advances of Potiphar's wife, he was falsely accused and thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined, undoubtedly a dungeon. Let's review, starting with verse 20 of chapter 39. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of the, all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Consider three principles from this chapter of Joseph's life. First, when bad goes to worse, the Lord is still there. I ask you to put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You've been betrayed by your brothers, sold into slavery. There you worked hard. You gained a measure of respect and responsibility. 
and you try to do everything God asked you to do, and then you get thrown into prison for something you not only didn't do, but clearly tried to avoid. Where's God in all of this? Well, the author doesn't leave us to wonder. For twice more, he tells us that the Lord was with him. Friends, the Lord never abandons us. He never takes a nap. He never delegates responsibility over our lives to someone else. The promise of his presence is an amazing comfort, especially when our lives take a turn for the worst. Remember again that key verse of the entire 13 chapters on Joseph's life. Chapter 50, verse 19. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. That is so important for us to remember. But God. Second, character is who we are, not what we do. It's bad enough to be a slave in a rich man's house. It's much worse to be a prisoner in the king's dungeon. But it doesn't change Joseph at all. He is still a hard worker, a faithful steward, a man of integrity. And he's going to be that no matter what or where or how long. And he was in that prison for a good long while. If you compare chapter 40, verse 1 with chapter 41, verse 1, you know he was in there much longer than two years. Bill Hybels wrote a book entitled, Who You Are When No One Is Looking. And he tells us in that book that character is not the same as reputation. Reputation is what other people think about you. Character is not the same as success or achievement. Character is not what we have done. It's who we are deep inside. Joseph, friends, lived by the same principles as a slave, as a prisoner. It didn't matter because that's who he is. Thirdly, success is possible in the worst of jobs. I like that statement in verse 23. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care. It's much like the statement made about Potiphar. He didn't pay any attention to anything except what he ate. But the statement about the warden is even more amazing. Can you imagine it? Joseph was such a man of integrity that the warden could go on vacation and leave Joseph in charge of the prison. It kind of brings to mind another prison story from the New Testament, Acts 16. There's a prison in Philippi. And uh, uh, an earthquake comes along and tears the prison walls down and releases the prisoners. And the warden is about to take his own life because he knows that not even an act of God is an excuse for letting prisoners escape. And then Paul speaks up and he says, uh, don't harm yourself. We are all here. And what are the next words out of the jailer's mouth? Sirs. What must I do to be saved? When believers live with integrity, the world just has to sit up and take notice. Now quickly we move to the third chapter of Joseph's life. 
and this is going to cover a large portion. We find a major reversal in Joseph's life. And we're going to spend most of our time here. God elevates him to the position of prime minister of Egypt. It's an amazing story. You couldn't make this stuff up. I'm just going to give you the cliff notes of, of what happened. Joseph is in the prison, and two prisoners come from Pharaoh's household that he has remanded to the prison. And they have dreams, and uh, they're seeking an interpretation of the dream, and God gives Joseph the ability to interpret their dreams. One dream, Joseph predicts, means that the servant is going to be restored to his position in Pharaoh's house. He tells the other prisoner, you're going to be executed. And both happen just as Joseph says. And uh, Joseph begs the prisoner who is going to be restored to remember him to Pharaoh when he gets out. I need a good word for you to say for me. But the man totally forgets him. Fast forward two years. Pharaoh himself has two dreams. And he is desperate to find an interpretation of those dreams. Finally, that servant remembers Joseph and what Joseph did for him. And he recommends to Pharaoh, you need to talk to this man, Joseph. And so he does. And Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. He tells Pharaoh that his dreams mean that there's going to be seven years of enormous uh, produce and harvest. And then it's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And they need to get ready for it. And uh, he claims it will all unfold in a short period of time because God has determined it. And Joseph also offers him a plan to deal with the seven years of famine. He suggests to Pharaoh that he purchase 20% of all the produce of the land, all the harvest, and store it away for the seven years of famine. Pharaoh is so impressed with the interpretation of the dreams and the plan that he puts Joseph in charge of the process. So we pick up the story in chapter 41, verse 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And men shouted before him, make way. Then thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. But without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphnath paneah and gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled Throughout Egypt, during the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food, that is, all that wasn't needed, all the excess food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding that city. Joseph stored up huge 
quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Now, Joseph is no longer a worker under authority. He is now a leader. So I want us to look at this portion of his work life in terms of of what a wise leader does or doesn't do. And the first thing I would mention is that a wise leader doesn't let success go to his head. Note well that Joseph the faithful trustee does not become Joseph the greedy, hard-nosed tyrant when he is elevated to position of prime minister. That's what you would expect in most societies. We all have seen it happen. We've seen people who had a major makeover in their personality when they had great success. No, Joseph continues to use the influence God has given him to do his job with absolute integrity. And I have no doubt that he continued to give God all the credit. Second, a wise leader practices delayed gratification. One of the greatest problems our political leaders have today in our nation is that they have, are, are completely ignorant of this biblical principle of delayed gratification. With the exception of former Senator Tom Coburn of Oklahoma, I don't know a single national legislator who regularly practices any significant degree of self-control in regards to the taxpayer's money. And that's a nonpartisan comment. It covers both sides of the aisle as far as I'm concerned. Congress is completely unconcerned about the looming crisis in Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, and the national debt continues to soar into the stratosphere. It's one of the reasons I see the Joseph story as so refreshing. Here's a man who instituted and enforced a savings plan on an entire nation. It all starts with Joseph, the prime minister, insisting that the huge amounts of grain that come in those seven years be stored away for future use. Now, most people, certainly most politicians, when they have an excess, just want to spend it. That's certainly what we have seen in our nation. Do you know that less than 20 years ago, we had two consecutive years with budget surpluses. And the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, was suggesting that in a short period of time we could reduce our national debt by $5 trillion. That's back when it was 7 or 8 instead of 20. So what did our leaders do? I suspect the same thing that politicians in Joseph's day were saying when they saw, saw all this grain being stacked up. Let's sell this grain and reduce taxes and uh, invest in universal health coverage or increase the, domestic, uh, the, the defense spending. They, they, I'm sure, had all kinds of things they could do. Almost never do we hear anyone seriously suggesting that it's time to pay down debt or to save for a rainy day. Rainy days do come, you know. They always do. They came on Egypt. Or maybe I should say dry days come because famine hit 
the nation of Egypt and the then-known world. We read about it in verse 53, chapter 41. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold the grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. Of course, God used that as we finish the story next week for amazing, amazing ways in Joseph's life. But I want to go back to this principle of delayed gratification. It is the best way to get what you need when you need it. It is the best way to enjoy some extras without mortgaging your future. It's the best way to enjoy almost anything because the longer you wait for it, the more you enjoy it. Or in many cases, find out you didn't need it in the first place. Delayed gratification, of course, is not just an economic principle. It's all also a moral and spiritual principle. It's the way God wants us to operate. That's why he tells us to delay the gratification of our sexual urges until marriage so that we can experience the true fulfillment and satisfaction that God intended for us. I see in the book of Proverbs another example. In chapter 24, verse 27, we read, Finish your outdoor work and get your fields ready, then build your house. That's delayed gratification for an agrarian society. We just have to translate it into our own culture, and there's so many ways it could be done. Now, our last three principles come from chapter 47, and the account of Joseph's leadership during the famine itself. And this is a little more challenging. Because we're going to learn some things about Joseph that on the surface may trouble us, but we, we want to look at them anyway. I want to begin reading in verse 13 of chapter 47. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is used up. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes? We and our land as well. Buy us and our land in exchange for food. And we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. 
Give us seed so that we may live and not die and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. Skip down to verse 23. Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today, that is, when the book of Genesis was written, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now, on first reading of this passage, one might doubt Joseph's qualifications as a man of God and think of him as just one more Middle Eastern tyrant. But I think that would be a serious misreading of the text. We, of course, must not read back into this text our Western democratic ideals or our capitalistic approach to economy. Please understand that Pharaoh, that Joseph was not Pharaoh. He worked for Pharaoh. Pharaoh was an absolute monarch. His word was law. Bible heroes lived in two different worlds. They lived in the cultural and social milieu of their day, but they also lived according to God's laws. And never did God tell them to abandon their culture, nor did he tell them to institute a revolution against it. Rather, he told them to live in their world, but not become of their world. And that's our responsibility as well today. So here's our next principle. A wise leader submits to authority and practices accountability. As we have noted, Joseph is number two man in the country. His job is to take care of number one. His job is not to further the people's interests or the immigrants from Canaan or the interests of other countries in the Middle East, but Pharaoh's interests. And as long as Pharaoh's interests do not violate the law of God, that is Joseph's responsibility, even obligation. Joseph did not give grain away. He sold it, and all the money came into Pharaoh's coffers. Now, we could choose to focus on the fact that this is making one man very rich. I would choose to focus on the fact that Joseph is not skimming off the top. All the money, it says, comes into the palace. Now, there's a lot of corruption in American business and, and politics and sports. And the more money is lying around, the greater the corruption. Joseph was not corrupt. He was accountable in regard to the huge amounts of money that were being collected. By the way, if you're troubled by the fact that Joseph sells this grain rather than give it away, remember that he bought it in the first place. Uh, the people knew why he was buying it. He was expecting a coming famine. They could have saved up grain for themselves, but they didn't. So let's put the responsibility where it belongs. Fourth principle, a wise leader faces extreme circumstances with creativity 
and competence. Probably never since the day of Noah had the world faced a crisis quite like this one. It's at times like these that people look for great leaders, creative leaders, competent leaders to solve huge problems. Franklin Roosevelt, whatever you think of his politics, was just such a leader during the Great Depression. Winston Churchill was the same for England during World War II, and Joseph served that purpose for Egypt. He built granaries all over Egypt. In recent years, some of these granaries, endless granaries, have been recovered from the sands where Joseph stored this grain. And he devised a way to um, dispense the grain. It must have taken quite a bureaucracy, which Joseph oversaw. And he devised a system of payment, first money, then livestock, then land. Just imagine how this was done, apparently without riots, without chaos. I wonder if healthcare.gov wouldn't have gone a lot smoother with a man like Joseph in charge of it. But you say something can be creative and competent and still not be moral. All the currency is now in Pharaoh's coffers. All the livestock belong to him. All the land belongs to him. Instead of private ownership, everything belongs to the state, which means belongs to one individual. Yes, but is this immoral or is it just distasteful to us? Did Pharaoh steal this stuff? No, he sold it. But then we learn something potentially even more disturbing about Joseph. It says in verse 21, he reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. That sounds totally unacceptable to us. But I don't think we should read the American slave trade back into this comment. Uh, Quite the contrary. I think this paragraph illustrates still another principle. A wise leader acts responsibly in in behalf of the people under him. Joseph is providing the single greatest need people have, the need for sustenance, for food. And it's clear from verses 23 and 24 that he did not take the income-producing ability away from the people. Uh, It it says Pharaoh took 20% of the produce and the people retained ownership of the other 80%. The last time I looked, our government leaves us less than, than that today. Not only that, the people's attitude in verse 25 is one of extreme gratitude. They say, you have saved our lives. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in willing bondage to Pharaoh. So whatever kind of servitude they were put in, they do it willingly. Uh, they consider this much superior to the alternative. We may look with disfavor on the economic and social results of Joseph's plan, but I think the people who experienced or better experienced it are better evaluators of it, and they are grateful. Now, I believe these principles are all valid today. We have to translate them into our society, our culture, and our economy. 
There's one more principle I'd like to leave with you this morning, and that is this. Success is not earned, even when we exercise integrity. Success is a gift from the Lord. Have you noticed how many times in this whole story the text tells us that the Lord was the secret of Joseph's success? No matter how brilliant or competent we may be, our success in life is not our own doing. President Obama famously said, you didn't build that. He took a lot of heat for that. He was right, but probably for the wrong reason. You didn't build that because the government helped you, was his point. I have a different point. You didn't build that by yourself. It was God who helped you, who enabled you. Think, friends, about how much you contributed to where you were born, into what family, at what time of the century, into what country, with what IQ, with what gifts and talents. What did you contribute to all that? Nothing. This is God's gift to you. His grace and His gift is more important than anything you've contributed or the government. You know, the very last thing I would want to convey to anyone today is that if you demonstrate integrity in your career, God is somehow obligated to reward you with promotions and success. More often than not, that probably will be the result of exercising integrity, but it is not guaranteed. God does not promise it. One of my favorite movies of all time is A Man for All Seasons. It was the best picture of the year in 1966, before many, most of you were born probably. It was my first year in seminary. It's the story of Sir Thomas More, the Lord Chancellor of England during the reign of Henry VIII. 500 years ago, this man wanted a divorce from another wife so he could remarry. God's law did not allow it. Sir Thomas More refused to condone it and resigned his lofty office so as not to violate his own conscience. But Cardinal Wolsey said to Thomas More, you're a constant regret to me, Thomas. If you could just see facts flat on without that horrible moral squint, with a little common sense, you could have made a great statesman. In other words, Thomas, if you weren't such a man of integrity, you could be a successful, famous person. And shortly thereafter, Henry VIII cut off his head. That is Sir Thomas More's. Now, whether your life follows the path of Joseph from pit to prominence, from prisoner to prime minister, or it follows the path of Sir Thomas More from Lord Chancellor of England to death as a martyr. God calls you to be a person of integrity, to live as though we are his ambassadors in this world, because that's what we are.
We are ambassadors of the good news that God took care of our sin problem by sending his one and only son to the cross to pay our penalty that we might enjoy being part of his forever family. I'm going to close with a prayer from Tom Nelson's book. I invite you to bow with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, I place my life and my work in your loving hands. Protect me from evil and strengthen me with your grace that I may resist the many temptations that confront me daily. Lord Jesus, help me to be fully present in the workplace where you have called me to honor you and to faithfully serve the common good. Holy Spirit, empower me to live a life of integrity, to be a faithful presence in my workplace, and to learn contentment in and through the vocation you have called me to, conform me to greater Christ-likeness of life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.